all of your faces this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, particularly if you're new, this is your first time, you picked a good time to come. Uh, as of last week, we jumped into a new sermon series that we'll uh, get back into in, in just a moment. Uh, but first of all, thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, my name's Jamie. Uh, I am the pastor who gets the privilege most weeks of opening up the scriptures uh, with God's people as we gather in this place. As I just mentioned, uh, last week did mark the beginning of a new sermon series that's going to carry us throughout the course of the summer months, a deep dive into the seemingly untamable waters of Ecclesiastes. It's really not seemingly untamable. It's untamable. I'll even give you a quote that proves that in just a second. But one of the most criticized, complex, and confusing books in all of the Bible, Martin Luther once said, this book is one of the more difficult books in all of Scripture, one which no one has ever completely mastered. As I mentioned last week, sheer terror for a preaching pastor. Craig Bartholomew Academic philosopher and theologian once said, Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. Just when you think you have all of the tentacles under control, that is, you have understood the book, there is one waving about in the air. So that many have asked the question, why, why is this book even in the Bible? Not only do there appear to be contradictory messages in the very book itself, but the author of Ecclesiastes appears to contradict other parts of Scripture outside of his own writing. And then there's the question of, whether or not the author is crossing the line into an unhealthy sort of pessimism, a skeptic and critic of God and his world, which begs the question, and I brought this up last week, why study such a book? Why not play it safe? Why dive into such a complex, challenging book of the Bible? And I mentioned a few reasons for that in the launch of this series. One, it's honest. We've been preconditioned as human beings in our culture, in our day and age, to hide our greatest sadnesses and skepticisms, to feel ashamed of our tears and to, to leave our deepest questions at the front door, particularly of gatherings like this even. And the author of Ecclesiastes, essentially, as we'll see over the course of this book, will have none of that. This book captures the frustration of living in a fallen, broken world incredibly well, well perhaps uh, even better than any other book of the Bible. Number two, it's course shaping. The book of Ecclesiastes has the, the power to change the very trajectory of our lives, to help us see the futility of a life lived in the pursuit of meaning apart from God so that we might know the joy of a life shot through with meaning when lived for God's glory. Number three, it's apologetic, meaning that it presents some of the, the most challenging questions of human existence. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Why does happiness always seem to be just out of our reach? The author of Ecclesiastes is not remotely afraid to wrestle with those kind of questions, helping us to see just how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to consider life apart from God. Number four, it's doxological, meaning that it helps us to worship God, the one who reigns above the sun, the one who brings meaning where all would otherwise be meaningless. And lastly, on this short list that certainly is probably more comprehensive than just these answers. But number five, it's practical, teaching us how to, to view and approach things that are part of everyday living, things like money, work, relationships, and even how to face death, proving it to be a book that is not only timeless, but timely. And so for these reasons, among many others, uh, we're going to give it a whirl, expecting great things of a great God who reigns above the sun, to use some of that language of Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. That's where we'll start off this morning. We'll work our way through chapter 2 by the time all is said and done. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of uh, the, the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles 
and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you brought with you is a little difficult to, to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us. We got a lot of ground to cover. I think I have 45 slides this morning, so uh, hopefully we'll get out by lunch. We're already on number 10, though, so be comforted. <laughs> let, me, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this book of the Bible. Uh, even this morning in our time of prayer prior to the service, I was reminded that we live in a world filled with a sea of distractions. There's something not just annoying, but maybe even a little terrifying about the thought of our radio going out in our car or the power going out in our home and having to sit with our own thoughts, having to slow down long enough to wrestle with some of the deepest questions pertaining to what we're experiencing in life and, and asking what the answers to those questions might be. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. We have an opportunity uh, to sit in the power outage, so to speak, this morning and to wrestle with some of the deepest questions of meaning and happiness as it pertains to what it means to be human. And so again, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you that this book is not all there is. Thank you that the canon of Scripture is not one book, namely the book of Ecclesiastes, because we have to look beyond the bounds of this book to find true hope and meaning and happiness. And so thank you for the Bible, for the story that it tells, the great story of redemption and hope found in Jesus Christ as I give away the ending from the beginning, even in my own prayer. God, I pray that you would work deeply in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that if there are any who are here who are not followers of Jesus this morning coming in, that they would be compelled by this Savior and King that many of us in this room profess to worship. And for those who do profess to be followers of Jesus, that that we would find our hearts turned from the pursuit of meaning and happiness apart from you, God, and that we would find ourselves not just turned from, but turned toward you to find our ultimate source and hope of meaning and happiness as we were meant to from the very start. Spirit of God, we invite you to move and work powerfully and mightily in our midst, in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So by way of introduction, since this is week two, I'm going I'm to do a little bit of recap this morning particularly for those who were out last week, there are a few things that require a little bit of framing right out of the gate with a book like this. Number one, the book of Ecclesiastes is anonymous. No personal name attached to the writing so that even the most conservative of scholars are divided on the matter of who the author truly is. Some argue it could be Solomon. Others argue it could be someone later in Israel's history identifying with Solomon in order to make a point. The implication being that if a king can't find meaning and purpose in this world, who can? What we can be sure of is that Solomon's life is presented as the historical backdrop of the book. And so throughout this series, you'll hear me refer to the author as simply the author of Ecclesiastes, but with the understanding that the life lived and evidenced in these pages is that of King Solomon. Secondly, the book of Ecclesiastes is primarily a book of questions, not answers. It's the Socratic method at its finest. The author presenting the reader with questions meant to scrutinize his or her commonly held beliefs. I shared this quote last week from Tim Keller who says, Ecclesiastes is not the place we find answers. It's in the rest of the Bible that we find answers. This man's job, the author, is to push you to the logical conclusion of your position. This man's job is to lay bare the foundations of your life, to push you to the boundaries of your thought, to say, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And if you believe that, do you see what that leads to? 
to push you because he knows that none of us have got the spiritual or intellectual guts to really look and ask the question, why, why, why about everything we do and everything we believe? So that the author of Ecclesiastes is going to help clarify what we should be asking the rest of the Bible so that we might see and experience the, the meaning and joy of a life lived in glad submission to the triune God. And he's going to do so by asking some of the very same questions that philosophers have grappled with for ages. There's nothing new under the sun, to use the author's language. Thirdly, the book of Ecclesiastes is filled with repetition, and that's a big deal because in the book of Ecclesiastes, if, if you're trying to make sense of it thematically speaking, the author makes it really hard because he talks about wisdom, and then he moves on to death, and then on to wealth, and then back to wisdom, and then death a little bit more. And it, it's, it's like a puzzle with the pieces all strewn about the living room if you try to make sense of it thematically. But there is something to the repetition of certain words and phrases and themes that helps us to understand the very message of the book itself. The word translated vanity is used more than 30 times throughout the book. The phrase under the sun used nearly 30 times itself. The, the real challenge being that, that those words and phrases don't always mean the same thing. They're complex in their various meanings, used to communicate a number of things pertaining to human existence and experience. Going back to last week, chapter 1, verse 2, and this is kind of the thesis of the book, he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You're like, what an encouraging book of the Bible this is, right? The, the word translated vanity literally means vapor or mist. It's like a breath on a cold day disappearing in a moment. We have maybe four of those in Georgia every year. Or smoke rising from a fire and disappearing into the sky. Meant to communicate a few things. Life is elusive. It's, it's mysterious and incomprehensible on the one hand. When we try to grasp it and understand it, it slips through our fingers. But it can also mean life is momentary. Here today, gone tomorrow. James 4.14 says, What is your life? For you are a mist, a vapor, a breath that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But it can also mean life is futile, never ultimately and truly satisfying, a chasing after the wind. It's not exactly the most hopeful of words, right? Meant to communicate the sensible conclusion in contemplating life under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, just as complex in its various meanings as the word vanity. It can mean life as we know it in a fallen world, things not as they should be. By the sweat of our brow we toil, to dust we will return because no one escapes death. That, that Genesis 3 curse fallen world sort of language, but it can also mean a, a view of the world absent of God, a this is all there is outlook, that there is nothing above the sun. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. The author of Ecclesiastes says, let's try that on for size and let's see where that actually takes us if we trace that to its ultimate end. It can also mean under the sun, a belief in God, but one that falls short of the tri triune covenant Lord of scripture. So that even when you see the author of Ecclesiastes talk about fearing God and keeping his commandments, what some argue is, is the hopeful conclusion of the book, he doesn't use the name Yahweh when he speaks of God, but rather Elohim, a more generalized uh, title uh, when, when talking about God. It's the word used in Genesis 1 when God created everything, but it's not until you get to Genesis 2 when the zoom lens on God and his image bearers in the garden comes to bear that Yahweh is used. The author of Ecclesiastes never talks about Yahweh, this covenant, intimate, relational God. Under the sun can mean a right confessional belief in God and yet a functional living for the glory and kingdom of self. 
So that there's applications for those of us who come in with a perfect confessional system of belief, tracking rightly as it pertains to doctrine, but who wake up day in and day out as if this is all there is, living for the now, building our own kingdoms. And then lastly, under the sun can even mean a limited perspective on life compared to God's comprehensive, all-knowing view of the world. The frustration in trying to, to grapple and grab hold of, of all of the answers, why things are the way they are, yet knowing that omniscience, all-knowingness, is an attribute reserved for God alone. See, all these various ways of contemplating life under the sun as we work our way through this book of the Bible. Going back to last week, the author presents us with an incredibly significant question, one that he's going to spend much of the book grappling with. Chapter one, verse three says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Another way to ask it, what's the return on investment? It's an economic question. What does it profit a person? The author of Ecclesiastes is not looking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. The under the sun answer is nothing. Having looked at the endless cycles of nature going back to last week's passage, the world running in circles without any sort of true progress or sense of direction, along with the reality that generations come and go, most of us will be forgotten when all is said and done. The author declares, under the sun, people gain absolutely nothing from their toil. If this is all there is, he says, vanity. And if this isn't all there is, but we live as though functionally this is all there is, that's vanity too. This morning, things get a little bit more intimate as the author takes us on his own personal journey, his quest to find happiness and meaning under the sun. And it's both incredibly honest and incredibly sobering, not to mention incredibly relatable. Practically everyone on the planet is searching for those two things, are they not? Happiness and meaning. As it pertains to happiness, the famous philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. David Gibson, in his book, Living Life Backward, which is essentially just a commentary on Ecclesiastes, he puts it this way. He says, what we long for and live for is happiness on the surface of our lives and at the deepest level of our lives. In all our varied pursuits, earning a living, finding a spouse, raising good children, having fun, keeping fit, we exhibit a common desire to be happy in what we do. We do not simply exist suspended motionless in time, he says. We shape and change the world and seek to control it. We plan and dream about our individual lives. We live with a purpose toward a specific end, and we have a goal to be happy. But not just happiness, but also meaning. The 20th century pastor, philosopher, and theologian Francis Schaeffer once said, all men have a deep longing for significance, a longing for meaning. No man, regardless of his theoretical system, is content to look at himself as a finally meaningless machine which can and will be discarded totally and forever. So that even the, the famous astrophysicist Stephen Hawking could say, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star, but we can understand the universe. Like, there's purpose there. We can at least grab hold of of what's going on in the world that's so much bigger than us, we can't escape it. The author of Ecclesiastes is on a quest that we're all on, a quest that none of us can truly escape, the pursuit of happiness and meaning under the sun. In verses 12 through 18 of chapter one, 
It's the pursuit of understanding. He thinks to himself, maybe more wisdom, knowledge, and understanding of the world will provide me with what I'm looking for. Chapter one, verse 12 says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. If, if anyone was qualified to search out the meaning of life using wisdom as a guide, it was Solomon, right? 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And all people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 23 and 24 goes on to say, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Coming back to this morning's passage, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Right, the perfect candidate to search out the meaning of life using wisdom as a guide. And we're told that he applied his heart. The heart referring to the whole person, the center of one's being, what's deep in the core of man. Meaning that we're, we're not only talking about an unrivaled wisdom, but also a deep devotion and commitment to the task. Both gifting and passion in perfect tandem on this quest to search for answers. And we're told that the search leads him ultimately to two conclusions represented in the form of two proverbs. Number one, that there's not enough wisdom in the world to fix what's crooked and lacking in this world. He says, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Not only is the, the wisdom of man incapable of fixing the brokenness of this world, making straight the crooked, but the wisdom of man is also incapable of making sense of it all of making it all add up in the end. We can't count what we can't see with our limited understanding is essentially what verse 15 means. It's a chasing after something that cannot be grasped. It's an unhappy, un, uh, burdensome task that the wisest man who's ever lived outside of Jesus, think about this, says there's not enough wisdom under the sun to understand it all or fix it all. Not only that, secondly, with more wisdom and knowledge comes more sorrow. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That if we, if we choose to soberly and intentionally face the deepest questions of human existence and experience, it's virtually impossible for us not to feel a growing sense of sadness. Little children have a lack of life experience that many of us wish for, do they not? And we try to guard them from, sheltered from the sorrow with age comes wisdom and knowledge, as many of you in this room know. And with wisdom and knowledge comes the eyes to see more of the things in this world that make it sad. Not only is the wisdom of man incapable of fixing a broken world and making sense of it all, 
With increased wisdom and knowledge comes increased sorrow. Having gone down the path of using wisdom as a guide in the search for happiness and meaning and declaring that search to be found wanting, the author of Ecclesiastes decides to go down a different path, the rabbit hole of hedonism, you might say, the path of pleasure. Look at chapter two, verse one. It says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He says, soberly and and intentionally grappling with the deepest questions of human existence didn't get me anywhere. Perhaps those who numb themselves and distract themselves are onto something. Bring on the wine and laughter. He says, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, meaning that, that he was able to weigh the significance and record his insights in the midst of the merriment. In the words of one commentator, he remained in control of the experiment. And what did he find? This too is vanity. Again, to quote David Gibson, he says, our national pastimes, for all their pleasure and fun, for all their creativity, are for most people simply a means of anesthetizing themselves against the pain of reality. Whether you are at the more sophisticated end of the scale with art, music, and fine wine, or whether you're watching a body stand-up comic in the back room of a shabby pub with the football blaring in one ear and the jukebox in the other, does it solve much, he asks. That for those who believe that there is no God and that this is all there is, we talked about this last week, laughter and pleasure have no meaning or purpose. Not if this world's an accident. There's simply something chemical at best, as mad as pursuing answers in the form of a drug needle. And for those who believe there is a God, pursuing pleasure apart from him cannot and will not bring us lasting meaning or happiness. A moment of laughter can't last forever, right? There aren't enough Netflix stand-up comic episodes in the world to keep it going. The warm feeling inside from a glass of wine will eventually wear off. And if you try to keep that going long enough, you turn into an alcoholic, Eventually, you have to face the reality of life under the sun yet again. So that he says, I know, if the pursuits of wisdom and pleasure can't do the trick, surely achievement and success will. Verse four, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He says, essentially, I was a cultivator. I was an innovator. I planted things. I made things with my bare hands. He says, you you think building your dream home will eventually make you happy? He says, I built dream homes, plural. And and notice the, the selfishness of it all. I built for myself. I made myself. I, I, I. It's an outlook on life with the self at the center, which if we're honest is not altogether unlike our own lives at times, is it? He essentially sought to build his own magic kingdom, you might say. Derek Kinder, Kidner describes it as this. He says, it was a little world within a world, multiform, harmonious, exquisite, a secular garden of Eden, full of civilized and agreeably uncivilized delights with no forbidden fruits. The author of Ecclesiastes says, my own paradise, and I was left wanting. If Solomon himself couldn't achieve enough success in this world to know true meaning and happiness, 
If Solomon himself couldn't establish his own all-satisfying heaven on earth? Verse 7 tells us, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. He says, I was the Hugh Hefner of my day. I was on the cover of magazines. I was wealthy beyond comparison. The house, the plane, the yacht, I had all those things. Powerful beyond measure. I had enough employees to run a Fortune 500 company. He says, I didn't own a few Taylor Swift CDs. I own Taylor Swift and the backup singers to boot. A woman on my right, a woman on my left, and a harem of those waiting in line to be the next. Power, money, sex, the world's currency. He wasn't lying going back to chapter one when he said there's nothing new under the sun, was he? Solomon had it all. Verse nine says, so I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Don't miss this. What's the one thing that he declares having found pleasure in? The toil itself. The pursuit of happiness. Not the end result of the pursuit. Because the end result of pursuing happiness under the sun is actually no happiness at all. He says so in verse 11. He says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, I I found pleasure in the pursuit of happiness and significance. But I never actually found the happiness and significance itself that I was looking for. I gained nothing says the man who obtained everything. Now I wanna stop here because I've made a, what I hope to be a compelling argument that Solomon was wiser and wealthier than anyone who's existed throughout the course of human history so that we might go, well, he's vastly different than me. If I had my grasp, Solomon, on all that you had your grasp on, I bet I could be happy, which is where I think it's critical for us to see where we're very similar to Solomon at the same time that we're different. Philip Ryken helps to make sense of that in his commentary where he says this. He says, like Solomon, we have ample opportunity to indulge in many sinful and selfish desires. In fact, maybe Solomon would envy us. Generally speaking, we live in better homes than he did with better furniture and climate control. We dine at a larger buffet. When we go to the grocery store, we can buy almost anything we want from anywhere in the world. He says, we listen to a much wider variety of music. And as far as sex is concerned, the internet offers an endless supply of virtual partners providing a vast harem for the imagination. They're very similar to Solomon. We live in a pick-your-pleasure society, and yet what's the common anthem of many people in our day and age? If I had just a little bit bigger house, maybe a little bit more spacious car, if I had a, a phone with just a few more features that the one I have right now is lacking, maybe a little bit more money in my 401k, or a, a vacation home, or, or I have one, a better vacation home, or maybe more time to travel. My goodness, could I not just keep preaching the list for the next hour, many multiple? Multiple hours, perhaps. 
John D. Rockefeller, at one point the world's richest man, was once asked, how much money is enough money? His response, just a little bit more. It's a grasping at smoke, says the author of Ecclesiastes. It's elusive and fleeting. C.S. Lewis said it so well in his work, Mere Christianity. He said, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think, first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. He says, I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking, he says, of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone he says knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, but something has evaded us. For those who would respectfully disagree with the author of Ecclesiastes, I love what he does here. He proceeds to take us to a place that none of us particularly like to or wanna go. It's not just that he concludes that happiness in this life is elusive. There's also the great equalizer of death. He says in Chapter two, verse 12. So I can turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. It's almost like when you lose your keys and you go to the spot that you always put them and and you don't see them there and then you go look in other places and then you're like, surely they must be back at that place that I always leave them. He comes back to wisdom and madness and folly again. Then he goes on to say, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Up to this point, the the answer to the question, what does a man gain, has been nothing. Now the author of Ecclesiastes declares that there is, in fact, more gain in one thing versus another. In his estimation, wisdom provides a little bit better return on investment than folly, light better than, than darkness, that while it's true that wisdom can't make straight what's crooked or, or help to make sense of everything, it is more advantageous than folly on most occasions, which makes sense if for no other reason than God designed the universe to work a certain way, right? With wisdom principles infused into everyday human experience. Generally, the, the person who works hard will have food in his or her pantry. Generally, the one who takes care of his or her body will, will live a longer life. Wisdom usually leads to a better outcome than folly. And yet, he says, the same thing happens to both the wise and the foolish in the end. Same thing happens to both those who walk in the light and who walk in darkness when all is said and done. Death is the great equalizer. Even the wise, verse 16, are forgotten when all is said and done. Alexander the Great, one of the well-known leaders and men of power, 
throughout the course of human history. He had a friend who was also a philosopher, a man by the name of Diogenes. And Diogenes was out in the field looking on a pile of bones uh, on, on one occasion, and Alexander saw him, and, and he thought, I wonder what he's doing. So he went, went out and, and asked the question, what are, you, what are you up to as you stand here staring at this pile of bones? And, and these, these are the words of Diogenes in response to his friend. He says, he said, I am searching for the bones of your father, Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. One of the most powerful men, one of the most powerful regimes, looking on the bones of his father and a bunch of people who did his bidding. I don't know who's who, he says. Most of the population of human history has been or will be forgotten. Chapter one, we talked about that last week, and that probably includes you and me, that we will very soon be part of the former things mentioned in chapter one, verse 11. In his quest to find meaning and happiness, the author of Ecclesiastes, verse 17, is left disappointed, even hating life. Like, life, how do I hate thee? Let me count the ways. Like, that's kind of where he's at at this point in the story, right? There are a number of reasons to hate life. There's not only the great equalizer of death, but think of all the things that are broken and wrong with this world. Physical pain, broken relationships, financial hardship, and on and on and on and on we could go, right? From an under-the-sun perspective, life is worth hating, not living, And not only because we're all gonna die, but he goes on to say, because we can't take the under the sun fruits of our labor with us when we do die. Look at verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also, he says, is vanity. We work and work. We never slow down. We can't shut it off even when we come home when the five o'clock whistle blows. We think in the middle of the night we wake up and we didn't even intend to and the next work project's on our brain and we can't escape it and get back to sleep and then we're bloodshot in the eyes the next day when we go and do it all over again. He says in the pursuit of something that won't last, destined to pass on the fruit of our labors to someone else and that someone could end up being a complete moron squandering everything we work so hard for over the course of our entire lives, blowing it all in the next pair of Beats by Dre, which, by the way, is a really good set of headphones. Um, but, but you get the idea. In Solomon's case, a foreign army ended up coming in and taking his accumulated wealth from his son. Didn't even last a generation. It was gone. Poof. In the wind. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he says. When left to to consider the conclusions of his little experiment, the author of Ecclesiastes says, verse 20, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. And that actually is about the most rational thing you can do if you're in the place that he's in in this moment. In light of his devastating findings, he then proceeds to present us with a summary of his conclusion in verses 24 through 26 where he says this, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. 
For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Some take these verses. I mentioned to you there are a number of angles at looking at a book like this. Some take these verses as a hopeful outlook in a sea of pessimism. Oh, thank you, Jesus. There's a life raft to grab hold of. That true meaning and happiness is is not found in pursuing wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and success on our own terms, but rather those who adhere to this view would argue that true meaning and happiness is found in receiving those things by the hand of God as gifts of his grace. That that's where true meaning and happiness are found. The solution to the problem that the author is seeking to solve. So that the, the words there is nothing better are used in the sense of there's nothing better than a good steak. Nothing better than a good, beautiful sunset. Others argue that these verses are no more optimistic than any other aspect of the book. That these verses present us with the author's resigned conclusion. The acceptance of something unpleasant that he can't do anything about. That the phrase, there is nothing better, is used in the sense that this is the best we can hope for under the sun. I personally find the less optimistic interpretation to be a little bit more persuasive, and here's why. If you go on to read Ecclesiastes further into the book, chapter 3, verse 22, he says things like this. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Sounds super encouraging, doesn't it? Or Ecclesiastes 5.18, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Same language as this morning's passage. The few days, he says, of his life that God has given him, given him for this is his lot. Or how about Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 through 10? He says, Go, eat your bread in joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Okay, it sounds good so far. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with, with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. You're going to the place of the dead. This is your portion in life. This is your lot, your vain life. Do what you will with that. I'm not convinced this is positive language at the end of chapter two. Maybe hopeful optimism, optimism in a sea of pessimism, but, but maybe not. And here, here's the deal. Like, I'm not sure we have to force that on the text. I'm not sure we have to find the answers within the book of Ecclesiastes itself in order for it to, to be a part of the canon of Scripture. Like, maybe even the end of chapter 2 is meant to push us beyond the bounds of the book in order to find the answer to man's search for for true happiness and meaning. There's gotta be something better, even for those who perceive the end of chapter two to be hopeful. Otherwise, it's just like the movie Groundhog Day. Like by the end of it, Bill Murray's character's tried everything, right? Hedonism, he's tried humanitarianism, he's tried to kill himself in a number of ways. All the things you see here at the end of chapter one and chapter two, and it's not until he finds true contentment in the moment that he wakes up and is out of the vicious cycle of awakening to the same day over and over again. Note that you can watch the movie Groundhog Day and you can buy into all of that apart from God. Apart from God is simply a call to distract ourselves. Again, to quote Blaise Pascal, he says, If some men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about them so as to become happy. 
The greatest, see the irony of this. The greatest of thinkers, thinkers have concluded that true happiness is found in not thinking. As if pretending that none of these things are a part of the world we live in will make them all go away. Peter Kraft, uh, one of the most brilliant philosophers, university professors of our day, he says this, he says, if you are typically modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. But suppose you find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world do you hide a rhinoceros? Easy, he says, cover it with a million mice. Welcome to the world in which we live. Multiple diversions, he says, an endless sea of small distractions, helping us to hide the reality of life under the sun from our view for as long as we possibly can. The author of Ecclesiastes declares, not only is that not a, an honest way to live, it's incredibly dishonest, but it's a, it's a drone-like falling short of what it means to be truly human. We're meant to think. We're meant to think on the things of God, to ponder the things of our existence. The answer is not to ignore life's deepest questions of happiness and meaning, nor is it to look for under-the-sun answers to our under-the-sun problem. It's when we look above the sun that we find the answer that we've been looking for, that we've been longing for. It's what the author of Ecclesiastes missed. Solomon ventured on a quest to seek ultimate happiness and meaning. Jesus ventured on a quest to secure ultimate happiness and meaning. He's the greater Solomon. He said so himself in the gospel accounts. One who is greater than Solomon has shown up on the scene now. The wisdom of man cannot fix what's been broken, only the wisdom of God. When you read Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2, you're meant to see a world in which man's pursuit of wisdom falls short so that you'll cry out, hallelujah, that wisdom has pursued us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He subjected himself to life under the sun, never once bending his knee to the idols of worldly power and pleasure, which coming back to uh, verse, uh, what is it? Final verse of this morning's passage is really good news. Look at that. Chapter 2, verse 26, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Who of us has pleased God on our own merits, in our Solomon-like pursuit of, of happiness and meaning apart from him? Isn't it good news that Jesus has pleased God on our behalf? Not only that, he subjected himself to death under the sun, taking the punishment of our self-indulgent, prone-to-wonder hearts upon himself for all the ways that we've taken the, the good things of life and made them ultimate in our pursuit of happiness and meaning in the greatest act, not of self-indulgence, but self-sacrifice and self-denial the world has ever known. He even came to deal with the great equalizer of death. There's one grave that's empty, amen? There's one that the dust did not claim and his name is Jesus. Death has been swallowed up in victory so that it cannot and will not have the final word for those who are in Christ. We don't have to... to live clawing after paradise in this world because Jesus has made a way back into the true Eden, the new Jerusalem, the celestial city. There's coming a day when Jesus will return to make straight the crooked forever, to do away with the brokenness and futility of this world and to do away with the brokenness and futility within us that residually longs for the things of this world. Eternal bliss in the presence of the greatest source of meaning and happiness in all of the universe. 
for those of us who are in Christ. I said this last week. Ecclesiastes is not a book declaring that nothing matters. It's a book declaring that nothing matters without God and that with God, everything matters. And so I'd ask this morning, do you know this God? Do you see that apart from him, all is vanity? You can chase and chase after this thing and that thing. You can pursue education and wisdom. You can pursue pleasure. You can pursue success. You can pursue all of these things. You can distract yourself just long enough and eventually you will lie on your deathbed and have to face it. Do you see that apart from him, all is vanity, that the most optimistic words that you can throw out apart from God is this, the best we can hope for. Jesus offers us something so much better. So that I would invite you to, to turn to him in faith, declaring to him, him to be a worthy savior and king, a worthy source of ultimate meaning and happiness. Know a joy sh- of a life shot through with meaning in knowing Jesus. And for those of us who profess to know and love and follow him this morning, remember the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to drive us from functionally living as though this is all there is, from seeking meaning and joy apart from God, while at the same time driving us to God, the greatest source of meaning and happiness in all the universe. Again, I quoted this uh, throughout this one last week. Tim Keller, he says, when you live for yourself, you lose yourself. When you live for the now, you lose the now. But when you live for Christ, you find yourself. And when you live for eternity, you get the now. A now, he says, shot through with glory. If you live for life under the sun, you'll lose life. If you live as though life under the sun is just part of a universe shot through with the glory of God, you will find your meaning. You will find yourself. That Jesus has made a way for us to stop clawing after ultimate happiness and meaning in this world. We don't have to live that way. That in Christ, we've been given eyes to rightly view wisdom and pleasure and possessions, success as gifts from God, never fully able to satisfy us in and of themselves, given as a means to, to glorify and worship the giver. One of the dangers of a book like this, and specifically a passage like this, would be to think that Christians are just called to forsake delight for duty and just to turn away from the party altogether. Which is why I love, love, love the parable of the prodigal son. Because it doesn't just start with a party, right? We see the younger brother squandering the father's inheritance, often wayward living in Vegas. But it also ends with a party. As, as the younger son comes home and is received by the father, is forgiven fully for wandering away, so that the final party at the end of that parable is rooted in a being satisfied in the Father's love. Christianity is not a forsaking of the party. It's a joyous party rooted in a being satisfied in the Father's love for us in Christ. Satisfied in Christ and his love, we can enjoy God's good gifts of life and laughter and relationships and so on and so on and enjoy them as God intended us to. It's a better party. And even more than any of those gifts, we've been given hearts to enjoy the very giver of those gifts himself. To use that parable, the Father, a relationship, a restored relationship with the Father, God himself because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Augustine said it so well. Thou hast made us for thyself, God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. 
May we not only repent of the restless heart of Solomon within us, but enjoy the happiness and hope of resting in the one who has made us for himself the greatest hope of meaning and happiness in all of this world.